Welcome everyone back or to Scale Lab, brought to you by Techly. I am Joe Wilson, your co-host, and I'm with, of course, my illustrious co-host, Constantine. And if I am Santa Claus in this episode, then he is indeed, of course, Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. Did I say it right? Yeah, not of. bad. Yes, no bad. The Dutch no bad. accent is better than the actual language that I have uh, comprehension. So we're, it's basically a holiday episode. It's, it's a holiday episode. A season's greeting. A season. season's greeting to our uh, listeners. Summary of the year in a way? Yeah. Somewhat. Yeah, I think we, if we can just touch on some of the real insights that, yeah. we, uh, that we got out of our uh, different uh, podcasts and uh, maybe some of our own reflections because, uh, Joe, you've been working with the, the RISE program and speaking to a lot of founders in the Netherlands. Uh, we obviously both have been uh, very active this year in kind of... Um, identifying what some of the key issues are that we can support the community of entrepreneurs right. with. Right. So we'd like to share them. And uh, Yeah, it should be yeah. good. I mean, we have, there's, there's been a lot of ground that we've covered in the course of what's now 13 episodes, 12 of which were guests, one, the first one, just the two of us talking to each other. That wasn't the most viewed or heard, by the way, surprisingly. No, so we're going to try that one again. <laughs> okay, we're going to try to do <laughs> so better So we decided to do that again. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but what a lot of ground. What a lot of people. We had uh, 12 guests, and yes. we'll probably say thank you to them towards the end. Um, and all the topics you can imagine, I guess, in scaling, we've touched on once or twice. All pr initially limited what I would think, a lot of them at least, were bound in the conversation in the Netherlands until we sort of broke it out of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we covered um, obviously um, investment strategy. We covered operations, um, hiring strategies, product market fit, leadership styles, and uh, and, and many other topics. Also, uh, reflections on on what's typical in the Netherlands, and maybe actually we can we can start there. Um, you are an embedded American in the Netherlands. Uh, you have uh, seen quite a lot um, in how entrepreneurship and, and the tech scene in the Netherlands is evolving. Maybe you can give some of your um, high-level mm. reflections on that. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's... A, 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 I should uh, place the disclaimers and apologies up front for all the things no, I'm please about don't, to say. No, no, okay, okay, wait, hey, stop here. Don't, don't uh, apologize. We, ex we, we expect Americans to be oh, direct. So oh, we'll be uh, don't be then. polite, be brutal. Yes. Yeah, so I'd say there, after this amount of time and, and our in-depth work over the last mm, 18 months or so at, at the at Tech Leap with Rise and, of course, our conversation we've had, I'd say I've got three or four areas of like really big frustrations and then two or three of pure delight. And I'm not trying to be nice. I'm just saying, I don't feel like I have to balance it, but that is true. Um, so I will start with the frustrations, not the delight. So one of the things that's, I'd say, bugging me, and I don't know the navigation around it, is the concept of ambition in this country. Um, and by that, I have a couple of flavors of that. One is... I meet too many entrepreneurs who are afraid to think, oh, this is going to be a big thing. It's going to be global and it's going to be a multi-billion dollar enterprise. They're afraid. They almost think it's ridiculous to consider that as an mm -hmm. outcome. And I'm, I'm not sure what drives that. But on the, I guess in parallel to that, I run into people like some of our guests who are um, criticized you know, they go out and they build something incredible. Like certainly Dutch have for centuries in terms of their enterprises and shipping and everything else. And yet as they reach some point, I don't know what the definition is, suddenly the people around them are saying, why are you so greedy? 
Why do you have to have so much? What is it? And so I don't understand it's this kind of, dynamic. There's a, dis, there's a dis, uh, success is discounted or something. Yeah, they're 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 fighting against their own culture in some cases when they're trying to go do something pretty extraordinary that can impact the world. And I don't know if this is some leftover from days gone by, but maybe I can return this question back to you and say these two things: this "don't be too ambitious" and the "why are you so greedy?" What do you? What is? What's the source of this? I don't. Not sure. I understand it. Well, and uh, yeah, I think it's a it's it's a fair it's a very fair point. Um, maybe it's you know smallish country um, thinking global immediately. You know, kind of conquering the world. Maybe you first you think in steps. That could be one. We do. We actually have measured this uh, that the Dutch entrepreneur is typically less ambitious than uh, many European counterparts, um, but we are more entrepreneurial. F- funny enough, so we have more startups, and and we because we tend to favor uh, independence and autonomy. So you become an entrepreneur to not be employed. Um, yeah. And and everything, if you grow, you decrease your uh, your autonomy and independence because you have more staff, you have more so you processes. Don't seem like the... well, you, and you get an investor involved. So all of that are compromises on your independence. So if you uh, building a big business is something else than being an entrepreneur and being independent. So independence as, as a cultural trait, which is... Uh, which is, I think, really strong. Another one is we want to innovate. So we're very much on the conceptual side. We, that's what we like. But building a company is an organization, is different steps, is processes, and these kinds of things we don't tend to particularly like. So on the execution of that, uh, there's much less enthusiasm. So we actually see that in the numbers. Um, we also see that when com- when an entrepreneur has done it before, so repeat entrepreneur, yeah, yeah. that kind of levels out immediately. And and we, and funny enough, we're seeing that in uh, it's between men and women. Men are more uh, bolsterous, I would say, more ambitious uh, at start. But women that have done it before actually immediately come up at the same level as men and all have yeah. that ambition. And so it is a lot to do with what you're actually saying. Um, fear of, or maybe the feeling that you you don't believe you can do it once you've done it uh that fear is gone and then the ambition level is is as high as I mean, in other you, places you you suddenly were without a salary position and you got comfortable with this and so you can well, take a I chance. guess it's also about uh, how many people around you have done it before and yeah. can tell you that this is normal i think in the us you'll find a lot of people or in places like israel that have done it before and will tell you you know you have to be much more ambitious because that's the way you're going to do it so ambition is part of being an entrepreneur in in tech and uh, it is also part of going out there and getting capital into your business and make, you know, and which means you have to convince other people that what you're doing is super great and they will invest in you. And, uh, and, and if you don't have people around you that tell you that's the way to go, but actually people that tell you, come on, you keep your feet on the ground. Don't, you don't, you know, thinking big, you're a dreamer. Why are you so greedy? Uh, exactly. Well, well greed, greed comes later. So greed comes with success. You see that is like some sort of, that's a definition we would, the culture would place on you later, not, not in the early days. No, no, no. I think the young entrepreneur, the startup, everybody loves. I, I sometimes use the, the, the image of your Robin Hood at the beginning. Everybody oh, loves yeah. you yeah. Uh, until you Underdog. then. Yeah, and when you grow, you become big and you're successful and then you become the sheriff of Nottingham and everybody looks just how rich you are. But you know, and then maybe this is a little leap towards where, um, towards our podcast. I mean, any one of the founders we had here are super low key. Don't you, uh, don't you feel most of them come on their bikes and, and, uh, yeah. and nobody would even know how successful they are. And I think that's another feature. We don't tend to speak up. 
We don't we don't put a lot of our entrepreneurs on the pedestal. They don't want to be on a pedestal. They prefer to stay under the radar, just build their businesses. And so there's not a lot of storytelling around successful enterprise. In, uh, well, this in will give me a transition to thing number two, which is the organic connection of people doing the same thing not happening. I, and maybe I should rephrase it. The, the CEOs or, or founders of companies in other markets, take the U.S., take Israel, take U.K., pick another example, tend to organically find each other and get together and sort of give up the whole competition mm -hmm. question and just try and like, it, you know, maybe it's therapy, maybe it's suffering, or maybe it's just getting the best ideas or not reinventing the wheel two times. And they seem to get together here. There's a frustration for me because I feel like, oh, wow, it's some other third party. Tech Leap's trying, others are trying to bring them together. Why don't they get together naturally? Why don't they just find each other and like every Tuesday night meet at some place or, or online if they have to, to have the conversation about what it takes to get through certain stages? Why doesn't it happen organically or naturally? You know, that I don't I I don't know. I think it's it's one of my frustrations too. It's not just getting together locally, which is obviously the easy thing to do, but also reaching out to people in the same sector or internationally. You're going to events. Uh, um, at at many of the events I've been, uh, where also where investors are, we find hardly any Dutch people. They don't they don't invest in relationships or networks uh, until it's really necessary. So it's very transactional, um, and I think that has something to do with it. Why would I go to that meeting if I'm not getting anything out of it? Mm. Well, you go to the meeting where you might, you know, you might be surprised what comes out of it. So in, indeed, we've been trying to stimulate that. And I think it is coming. You, I think you'll see much more of that already in Amsterdam and stuff. But to do that at the national level, for instance, is yeah. Is I mean, a I don't know how you make a country do something, but I mean, exactly. But, but there's also yeah. the, there's there's this also the. Uh, I mean, someone said to me, "Oh, it's because we separate work and life so cleanly. We don't see the why would we go somewhere at night to a dinner just for networking for no purpose." No, that could be a point. That uh, definitely, I mean, that that could be one of the points. But I, I don't think we are. What we do uh, know the, is that yeah. these ecosystems that do this have an advantage right, exactly. because these founders learn from each other so fast. There's no uh, nonprofit or government in the world that will be able to sort of uh, accelerate learning the way that they will with each other. Exactly. The answers and, are within the other yeah. founders' heads yeah. if you can go and, find uh, them. And, and, and it is a bit odd, actually, that an organization like TechLeap would be the driver of a community. But I think that mm -hmm. the community, because we are not entrepreneurs ourselves, yeah. um, and actually entrepreneurs should be driving this. And uh, But it is something we believe very strongly in because we think that that learning in the community is probably the most sustainable um, kind of... Uh, I'd say that driver of the flywheel, because those yeah. entrepreneurs will start investing in each other if they know each other and they will find each other. And you and get these answers so other, fast and it's, yeah. and it's trusted information. Yeah. So and, and, uh, another point. And there are a few that people, I mean, yeah. I know there's a few people out there that are doing it. I'm, I mean, I'm making these black and white statements, but I know there's a few people in the industry that are really trying. There's some dinners, some founder dinners and things Absolutely. like that. You know, it's just sort of critical yeah. mass. Yeah. Number three, and, I'll, and then I'll go to the delights, um, is I think from a, f a capital perspective, a money perspective, it seems both too complicated to be an investor from a tax structures and situations stuff like that. And it also seems too conservative to be a founder, meaning you're always, you're, ne you're negotiating valuations and, and you're negotiating your, your fun, your round, if you will, in ways that are like 
2x more complicated than you should need to. And I know if I look at the way the rounds are constructed in the U.S. or the or Israel, U.K. or other markets, you it sort of found its way to simplification, at least in the early rounds, right? I know that it can get much more complicated with secondaries and everything else later on. But here we have this general feeling, and maybe it's not correct, but a feeling that the investors are trying to be too conservative and push the valuations down, own more. I mean, there's this almost combative question with founders on whether the investors are trying to take advantage of them mm-hmm. rather than like can line you, up. Can you be a bit more precise? Precise. Or, um, um, give an example. Well, without naming all the names, yeah. I would say there's been at least five or six companies in the last six months who are hesitant to raise in the Netherlands. And they much want to go out of the country into, say, U.S. investors or U.K. investors because they think, one, they're going to get a better valuation. Yep. Two, they're going to be able to have access to more money continuously, rounds past that. Mm-hmm. And three, they think that they're going to get a more fair deal. And I think maybe the first two are pretty accurate, but the third one, I'm not sure. That that's accurate. I don't know that it's any more fair, or less fair, but there's a perception mm-hmm. that they, that yeah. somehow the Dutch VCs are 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 tr- making it too hard. Yeah, well, I think um, it's also to do with maturity and uh, and supply and demand. There was a lot of uh, demand for capital, and there was very relatively limited uh, supply. And the supply side is obviously. Uh, greatly increasing so and also there's a lot of competition now from uh, from firms from and funds from outside the Netherlands which will drive up we believe the the kind of levels of service and also standard uh, standard terms that would make it easier um, for 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 getting investment but also at, a, at more favorable terms um, but this I don't know if it's only about maturity, but definitely what we hear back is uh, that um, investors want a lot of control. Mm. Uh, relatively low, and it's what we're seeing in the data is that the uh, early rounds are are relatively uh, small. Yeah. Um, though this last year, obviously, with a nearly threefold increase of three. Uh, yeah, I mean, more three, money is coming in. Yeah, yeah. So much more money, but in more in the later rounds, and uh, and it's a lot of mar- money from foreign funds. So we don't really know if it has actually impacted the terms on which, uh, which uh, Dutch investors are investing. Um, and there are places where, uh, geographies, where there are just very few investors, like in the in northern or yeah. northern the Netherlands. And really you'd call on on all founders, maybe to look beyond their, their local investor and because oh, you know, capital I, is I couldn't fluid. even believe yeah. you said geography. I mean, no, we can really, drive from no. one end of the country to the it's, other in you, less than five hours. Like, how yeah, is that a and, geographical and the, question? The limited supply there and, and the, sometimes the terms as well that are applied are, um, have created an environment where people feel that venture capital is a bad thing. Yeah. And so they will shy away from having even conversations with uh, with capital because they don't want to give up control because they feel that uh, investors get on um, one one board seats to control the company yeah. and and be uh, yeah. instead of supporting them and being successful. And this is something which I don't know if we can if we can generalize. I don't know enough about uh, how the situation is in other European countries. I assume quite a lot of that is there as well. I mean, where uh, we're seeing. Uh, venture capital um, sectors actually maturing. Um, I, I would think that in Scandinavia and in Sweden especially, uh, it's more mature and uh, I think France more supportive. And, I think Berlin, Berlin and, area. Berlin and, uh, and, and the UK, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the others if it's very different. Hard But to say. I, I guess what I'm hoping is that we are able to convince both sides of this equation that, that there is something wonderfully great in it for them along the right terms. I mean, one of the issues I see is there's, at least with Dutch investors, there's quite a lot of tranching 
you know, and I think... Oh, that's, yeah, that practice is something. I mean, this is really what we need to do is, and also uh, founders need to speak up about this, uh, is, you know, we have to kind of identify what those practices are that you do not want. And actually the podcast was very, it was very interesting. I thought, especially with Peter van der Does, where yeah. he was saying about, uh, you know, that the terms are more important than the, uh, than the, act, than the actual money. It's, you know, you have to enter in a relationship with your, your, um, with your investors and, and know that you are aligned on, on, on purpose as well. Otherwise, uh, it will cause a lot of stress. And I think many of the founders accept terms that are not favorable and, and go for money um, in that phase without thinking about uh, the, consequent, uh, or the, the consequences and, and the consecutive rounds that, they, uh, that they'll have to enter into and, and how they're teed up for that. And I, I really do think that um, um, you know, more transparency in what's happening in practice, more learning from the side of the founders on the one hand, and also more responsibility on the side of the investors because they are the ones doing this multiple times and founders often yeah. do it for the first time is something that we really should, uh, should well, get and more the founder, look, to be, We can, can, can bitch about the ecosystem all they want to, but founders have to be smarter about Oh, absolutely. Raising. I mean, I just, absolutely. But this idea yeah. that you go into your Series A and you're just, you don't know anything. Like, it's There's a lot of information. I mean, just go live on the Y Combinator website for like a couple of days and you'll get everything from safe agreements to valuations. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there to educate yourself. Uh, absolutely. But I think what, what in the podcast also came up uh, clearly is that the repeat entrepreneurs in the group yeah, uh, were more savvy and mm. have actually set the terms. Things like you own your board is something yeah. that you you hear from more experienced founders and uh, and you hear I'm controlled by my board by the, the less experienced ones. So yes, there's a lot of learning. I hope the podcast also will uh, will be part of that. Uh, of, of we of, definitely touched on that. I yeah, think Peter, we touched on that. I think with um, um, uh, Michiel, we touched on that as well. Absolutely, with Picnic. and, and Picnic uh, was very sophisticated. Yeah. Now they did invest at Yitza yeah, as well. Yitza and, um, and even uh, Derek and Derek Rose when he talked about like going after the the, the money in the U.S. and why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I think there's there's a number of examples on that. To the delights, so, delights, 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 uh, Joe. There is a near infinite source of good ideas. Like, I think one of the hard things that some countries or at least some areas, I tend to think in geographical areas rather than nations, um, you know, it's like how many things are unique or different or possible, but we've got, we've got a deep tech sector we've got bio, we've got uh, sustainability and we've got universities that support those in, in quite a, with quite a lot of investment. And then we've got the, I think a, a remarkable SaaS, you know, almost there's this kind of, boom in what I would call middleware. Like mm -hmm. there's companies that come in between major, yep. like major retailers and their logistics or supplies or returns or things like that. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of remarkable, remarkable source of ideas. It's just that, you know, then we apply these first, these complaints that I just had and, and mm. you, we, we're stifling maybe too many of them too early, but I think that there is a source of innovation that can be capitalized on in a remarkable way. So that's, that's a delight. It's like, I don't ever think I run out of meeting new companies with new ideas that are, that are pretty cool. The second delight is I'm surprised about the number of potential, very capable leaders that I meet. So if I just took 25 companies that I would meet in the U.S. and I took the individuals leading them, like somehow on a 50-50 basis, I kind of think regardless of how good the idea is or how much money they have, they're not going to make it because the person leading it just 
won't be able to go far enough or they can't grow far enough. There seems maybe this, the cultural stuff that I criticize is good for this. There's a lot of leaders who could really grow with their organization. They could stay that CEO for a lot of, you know, time to come if they let themselves grow with it. So there's yeah, a what, leadership. What are the qualities that you, yeah. uh, that you first, identify? First off, there is a natural, uh, so as long as you don't take it too far, there's a consensus building. So in other words, there's a democratic approach to running a company, which is really the, mo I think, a more modern approach to leadership. It's when we are, we believe in the talent of the individuals in our organization and we want to grow that. And there's something natural about the Dutch way of doing things that looks at the people and says, well, These are smart people. Let them do them smart things. So that's one. I think there's an operational expertise uh, in some of the, in most of the folks that I meet, which means that they can look down into the operations and how do we run and what rhythm and what process and how does that work? And they want to work on that, which is sometimes where a company lives or dies. And then I think at, at, least, at the very least, they tend to be, most tend to be product driven first, as opposed to like, oh, it's a great business idea. Let's make a business the thing and then we'll put some tech underneath it. It tends to be the other way around, which is let's go build a remarkable product to solve a problem and then we'll figure out the commercialization. And those are traits that I think more, more companies would like to have. So there's mm. that, that, I think that's a delight as well. Yeah. And, um, don't, and we, we discussed this as well about the techiness of, Uh, founders, yeah, and typically, uh, you know, with Ali obviously being, you know, coding himself, yeah, and, and you find more, uh, and, and Robert, and you find, you seem to find more of that in the U.S. Uh, and in Israel, where the the founder itself is the tech guy or girl, where here often they are more the bit on the business side of the. Uh, well, I would ask you the ones that are truly accelerating or truly making a difference in the market, what does that profile look like? Because mm -hmm. they're the ones that we spoke to. Yeah. I mean, you can take Ali, you can take Robert, you can take Derek, um, even take, um, 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 well, I was thinking Michiel, but I, that, I mean, he's, yeah, Michiel's also business. On the yeah, business but he's on, he's also on the, uh, on he's the, very data driven. Yes. I, but you take Manon. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she was making the pizza. She knew the recipe. So it's, that's the tech for her business. So the ones that are really breaking through, I would argue tend to be, technically driven in one form or the other technically driven but not not coders themselves yeah and i'm not sure that coding is the definition of tech anymore no. i think okay. coding is a, is a means to an end but under the comprehension understanding and appreciation of the technology itself is what i think is the if a, you, know, you can take peter peter says he doesn't write any code but you he is so focused on the role that technology plays in agen right mm -hmm. i mean they want a a coder or, or an architect at the board Yep. conversation so their value of the technical side of the equation yeah and that's very much the same at at, at bunk it's very much the same at uh actually at all the people actually all the companies we spoke to obviously picnic is is calls yeah. itself an ai an ai company because it's it's so key to what they're doing well and because of this these companies that we speak to what else is possible for them you could take i mean picnic is doing uh, you know they're doing supermarket they're doing groceries but I mean, it's a remarkably intelligent logistics system. They mm -hmm. can do whatever else they want to with it. Bunk is probably something more than a bank someday. I mean, you could pick a lot of these companies and they have, because of the technology, their potentials are far greater than kind of the one trick pony thing that you see sometimes. Yeah, and it's represented in leadership. It is. Yeah. You're right. It shows up yeah. in, in the people. Yeah. yeah. I must, I, this is one of the things people keep asking me, you know, why, uh, um, you know, Manon with her pizzas, you know, that's not a tech company. And I keep saying, just listen to the podcast about how she applies her understanding of kind of building a software product and how she applies that to a pizza. 
Yeah, I mean, she and, was you know, building the, a software product that was recognizing handwriting. And, yeah, that's uh, and, she, you know, yeah, fonts. Yeah. She was creating fonts, right? Uh, yeah, fonts and yeah. Uh, you know, handwriting font in, uh, yeah. and um, and how she was validating the product and identifying her customer base, and and then how she kind of method, very methodically um, developed her business, and uh, and and that's we we have these discussions at TechLeap as well. How much tech should it be? You know, do companies? Um, a need to be tech driven is like 50% of the staff uh, in tech or these kind of metrics and kind of more and more we think about every it's it's is this a company that can be invest is investable because it's a high growth company and it applies tech in a way that it you know that a venture capitalist could actually invest in them is maybe a better metric because um, everybody is now starting to apply these kind of business um, business insights into how to build a company, and it's very hard to say what is tech and what is not. And if you if you apply kind of a tech logic to uh, to becoming the biggest pizza or you know uh, vegetable based pizza um, uh, producer, then why not? Why wouldn't you be part of our community? Yeah, I mean, I think there's in any world people somehow look for reasons to segregate themselves. I think for yeah. us, we're we're looking at success. And we're asking ourselves, what is the path to the success? And and we're tech angle, angle this podcast and tech leap itself, even in the name, it's looking at the tech. Yeah, I but do, it, but I, mean, I think know. it. Impl- I think it's important though. Yeah. I think you've raised something. I think it's very important, and I would call it product driven rather than tech. Like, are you product? Maybe driven? that's a good point. Are that, you dri- are you driven thing, from yes. the product? Yeah out to the world, you're solving a problem and you're doing it through technology, or are you somehow getting the idea how to make some money, now you're going to throw some tech behind it and see how it works. I think the first one works, I think the second one is a, is a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, and, and given your the point that you said about the diversity of a good ideas, um, and we're looking at, you know, from TechLeap, we're looking at biotech, we're looking at quantum, we look at all these domains. Um, and sometimes people say, you know, but biotech is a completely different different development sure. funnel. Uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't include it. But we think it is all tech because the ones that are successful do apply uh, uh, the same the same kind of logic. And and as you said, are very product oriented and always kind of going towards uh, serving that customer. And uh, I think that comes through in our um, in our podcast as well. Well, I think is there's something about product driven companies go after problems that they see existing. And they may not actually know the whole market conditions, but they have a problem they're trying to solve. And through that problem, they find the tribe of customers, at least the early adopters customers. And through that, they get the feedback and they get better and better. But if you go the other way, I just don't think it, it's for me. I'm a little too tech, I guess, sometimes in these conversations because my love of the technology is so high. But I worry about people that think it's, there's a cash machine. Now I need, just need to throw the minimum amount of technology yeah. underneath that, which I think is I think that's a problem. Can you can you dive into the, maybe before you go to the last delight? Or <laughs> no, I di- hit the last delight. That was that it. was like okay, good. You get it. No more delights. Delight. That's it. Uh, no, is, is uh, the the tech part? Yeah. I know you. This is something that you've been talking to a lot of our companies. Um, getting the tech right. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's. Um, in the different companies we talk to at TechLeap, because and for those who don't know, my role at TechLeap is one of the entrepreneurs in residence, and I, I guess, the lead one. But I spend a lot of time with individual companies. I volunteer my time to do that, and it's it's really fun for me. And there are these models, these sort of archetypes that show up. Whereas someone comes in and says, "Oh, I have a great business idea." And then I'm going to build the minimum tech it takes to do that. Or like I just described, someone's like, I'm going to go build some phenomenal product or thing that people will want to use. 
And I think that we underinvest too often on the technology. In fact, one of my measurements of young companies is if you're not 50% developers, you know, at least in this day and age developers, like, I think you're probably not serious. I don't think, I mean, if you don't have half of your staff focused on the product and the technology, you're just not, this isn't real for me. I think you've just sort of tried to minimize that investment, you know, and you spend a lot more money on sales when you should have spent it on something else. So I think that that's part of getting it right is, is balancing the number of people focused on the problem. And the second is the depth and understanding of the technology. Do you have a CTO in this company who you've elevated to co-founder and you've given the ability to have a vision and go do something technically that is really beautiful and interesting in the world? Or did you, again, minimize that because you didn't want to give away equity or something like that? Those are two levers that can be played when you got to get the tech right. Because we've been touching a lot on uh, momentum versus perfection, right? Everybody chooses momentum. I think this is one of the inside. Momentum is super important. <clears throat> But there were instances in where um, momentum became, uh, to, to serve momentum, the tech was just patched up and patched up yeah. and patched up. And people then realize that when, uh, when true product market fit uh, arrives, the tech just doesn't scale anymore. Yeah, and you have to, uh, and it's an existential point in the company where you have to basically break down. Oh, you uh, might lose your window. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, Can you elaborate a bit on that as well? Well, I mean, the momentum over perfection, over precision, mm. I think is one that it seems consistent amongst all of the breakthrough companies that we talk to. Mm -hmm. They all choose that. And I never know if that's actually the firm belief or, or sometimes nostalgia speaking, right? In a sense, we look backwards and we think, yeah, we always chose momentum over you know, perfection. But uh, I don't think there is perfection on any product. And I think the decisions you make on products are as... Uh, fallible as the decisions you will make in the business side for investments and everything else. You're always taking a chance you never know. Like someone will ask you, what's the perfect next release of your product? And even the best will be like, well, you know, I don't know. So I think that is, that's still, that rule still plays, even when you're product focused. I think the risk of you missing your window, because everything in great, these, these great, wonderful successes we see kind of have three pieces, right? They have a product focused organization. They have enough, um, capital, you know, I call it capital, but let's just call it fuel to get there. And they seem to hit it at the, somewhere in a window of, timing, of, of yeah. timing. It's all about timing. And I think you at least want to de-risk screwing up the timing problem, right? And that might, I think the highest, fastest way to do that is to have a product that's very solid. So, Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of companies and then over time you think, well, why didn't they, where are they now? Why aren't yeah. they much bigger? Yeah. Uh, they were doing so well. And then um, very often they had been basically bluffing over the technology. Yeah. So they've been uh, building the business, telling the story, and then they found that it just didn't scale. They couldn't serve that global market that they were going after. And especially when they go international, they find that when you're in the Netherlands, in your home market, there's a lot of patching you can do. Yeah. The lines are very short. You understand the culture. You won't but then see it. once you go abroad, suddenly it becomes clear that things do not work. And that, uh, and then, I think that's it's a critical moment, at least what I would get back from uh, from many of the people we speak to, is to then not try to patch it up, but actually take a step, step back and actually make sure that your product is really built to scale. 
we'll, we'll stay out of the technical side of this conversation, but let's just say that, that you've, what you just described is, is, a, is an architectural conversation, which means yes. you have to back up yes. and look at the big decisions we made in order to construct this thing and what has to change. I had this conversation with a, um, a founder oh, seven or eight days ago, and we were having this negotiation about the technology investment, and uh, he was sort of disagreeing with me firmly that, oh, no, we don't need that much. That's too little. And I was trying to get through to him some way, and the only thing that seemed to reach him to think about it, I'm not sure I convinced them, was the phrase, why would you take an idea that's that big and and and, and not sort of respect it with the technology that's equal? So that you need the technology to make that idea. You said it was going to be billions and reach every country in the world, and yet you built something that could maybe drive across the street. Mm-hmm. So you need to respect your or service that idea with the technology that allows it to become a reality. Otherwise, you're just sort of screwing yourself in that picture. I don't think it makes it makes yeah. any sense not to bother with Actually, Joe, yes, I actually. think uh, I do have uh, a not-so-good aspect of the Netherlands that you didn't touch on and okay. we didn't discuss a Let's lot, so you forgot about it. I will then defend, defend it. <laughs> no, ahead. you won't. You won't in this time. It's diversity. Ah, yeah. I think diversity and inclusion of uh, the whole population of you know, in, active in tech is very skewed towards um, male, young male, and mostly uh, uh, white. And um, we have discussions about this, obviously, in the different programs we have. We, we actively try to support diversity and inclusion, and we find it pretty hard. We also know that um, an inclusive culture that drives towards diversity is is very beneficial for the company as you grow as it grows because you have a bigger pool of talent that you can address also um uh, you, you know, you'll 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 need it once you go beyond the netherlands you'll need to uh, you probably need to attack, attract um, foreign talent as well and and if you have a completely dutch white male culture it's very unlikely that you'll succeed at that scaling phase uh, why is it you know in your experience of talking to so many companies that we we seem to know this. It's the is the one part of the brain that knows that this is critical, but we just don't seem to get it right. And we're still seeing that uh, we're underinvested in female founders. That the teams often are very male oriented, and we find it very hard to get people with minority backgrounds to actually enter this tech scene. Well, I hope that the irony of the two middle aged white guys talking about this topic is this not is lost on anyone. It is obviously <laughs> this, very in this particular yes, conversation. Yes, yes, but you have a better beard than I have. Oh, it's just okay. longer and grayer. That's all. <laughs> so the this is one that I'm like. I, Honestly, I sort of sit back and be like, what the fuck? Like, what what has happened? What happens that we somehow didn't some figure out years ago that this is not political correctness. This is not trying to be nice. This is not trying to balance. It's That's all the bullshit stuff that comes through. What this is, is freaking brilliant business strategy. What we know statistically, globally, whenever there is a balanced team, gender diversity as a minimum and then other diversities beyond that, they outperform the other teams. So I, I want insurance for success. How, how do I buy that insurance policy? Well, I, I balance the team. Mm. I mean, this is yep. like, this is one of those like basic phenomena that people understand if they've been doing this a while. But somehow here, I don't know how or why, we are holding um, female leaders back. I mean, you know this as well as I do. We have looked on this program to find at the equivalent level of success female leaders to be. It's not that they don't exist 
But, you know, in our tech space, we have struggled to find someone that had the same level of success. We have struggled to find people that would be that voice. There are plenty of people out there doing business, but their ability to rise to a multi-billion dollar organization or lead it, we seem to be holding them back somehow. And I don't know where that is. So I'll just, in my experience in talking to the founders, everyone knows this is a challenge, but there are so few yet who are willing to embrace the challenge with like the basic of decisions, like... Okay, before we hire another male, we're going to interview 10 females for every job. And if we find, you know, we force ourselves to go learn how to find, how to build diversity. Well, first we accept that diversity is a business strategy and that it's a financial strategy. And then second, we go after some process in our own company. It just seems to be, everybody makes it such a sensitive issue, which I just find an empty argument. The argument is we want to be a bigger, faster, smarter company. So we have, a, we have to go create this balance. Yeah. So I, I find I don't find resistance in the no, companies, no. not all. I think but the, I find no. unwillingness to do the hard commit, which is like the next hire will it's be never, female. It's never the priority, and then it becomes it becomes a real bottleneck later on because people I don't think understand fully that um, if you want to build a tech company, nearly by definition it'll be you'll have an international uh, yeah. team. By so um, you can be based wherever in the world, but the talent will come from, you know... We'll, wherever we'll, in the world. We'll, 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 exactly. Yeah. And if you don't have a culture that's inclusive, you won't be able to attract them. And again, that is a point that people understand, but they come to it quite late. So they have a company that's already kind of 40, 50 people. Culture starts to get entrenched. Um, you hire your first HR executive, and then, you know, you, you're, you're fighting an upward ba battle. Well, they uh, suffer the problem. Yeah. Rather than a, exactly, uh, or, making or it avoiding a, yeah, the problem. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. like, I'm going to wait till someone has slapped me 20 times before I'd say, that's not good. I should yeah. not get slapped. So that's, uh, you know, to all our listeners, <laughs> one of the messages that you really have yeah, to... Would, uh, we are yeah. not advocating, yeah. oh, be nice, do the right thing. I, although that's good. We're advocating successful businesses do better in the market and they make more money and they're financially more stable, et cetera, et cetera, because they do this. Like, yeah. I just want to get over the whole emotional side of this and get onto the business side. I just don't, I find that, which is, that kind of leads me into the international part of this, right? Because mm -hmm. you mentioned it. What do you think the learnings are that we took away from this year about the point of view on being international from Dutch companies? A lot of these can end up being local lifestyle companies are not careful, but what do you, what did you take out of our conversations from all the folks that we talked to? Um, the typical one is you actually are uh, you might you might build your company in the Netherlands, but you from the start you need to think international. Uh, and we just touched on the staffing side. Um, your talent will be international, but also your market is international. And if you and you're competing with companies that are not in your same in the same geography and uh, the same uh, in the same markets, um, and but very soon they will be. So. Um, We've seen companies like, I mean, Taco immediately, you know, first, of course, testing their proposition in San Francisco and New York and, uh, and building their manufacturing capabilities in, uh, in, in Taiwan. Um, Peter immediately going also to Silicon Valley, first yeah. customers, obviously just English as a, as, a, as a base language in the company and really orienting toward becoming a global uh, payments company. 
Yitz as well. Yitz had this kind of issue of you know, his developers in uh, in Twente, and there's a cultural difference between Twente and Amsterdam and then <laughs> yeah, Berlin, right. and and so he obviously has been acquiring companies and 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 make and and they had obviously a, the, there was a, a trade off between keeping local culture versus right. uh, integrated uh, company culture, but all of them have been focusing on going international. I remember the story of Joel, which is an interesting one about how they bluffed their way into France yes. and then had some tax issues, even though they didn't have a physical location there. But every one of them um, was, was immediately focusing on, you know, how do I don't don't get stuck in the Netherlands, I think. Yeah. The market is international and, and beyond your... Uh, your comfort zone. Uh, I think very strong example is uh, Picnic, where you have relatively uh, complicated logistics operations with high cape- capex, and then uh, before you consolidate in one market, bam, go to the next market and 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 keep that pace. Um, I think that's one of the major lessons out of this. Every successful company, tech company in the Netherlands, will have to have an international strategy from the beginning, yeah. and they and they'll learn as they go along. I mean, they, I mean, that doesn't mean that they don't adjust. There, some of them had kind of near death experiences by going uh, going abroad, but that helped the company go further in the long run. I mean, they, the as you said, the ones that we find that are successful have the Netherlands just happens to be where they were born. It doesn't mean it has to be the limit to where they live. No, and they and they they think international from day one. We will be an international company. We'll be multi geographies, multi languages, and they just they design that into the product and into the business model from the beginning. That seems to be pretty consistent across across all of them. Yeah, actually, what I really liked. Um, Robert uh, and MessageBird, when they uh, they went to Y Combinator, right, and they were already a company, successful company, and uh, and a bit they late for Y Combinator, right? They were, they were little, late, yeah. yeah, they were late, and they were too big, and he kind of wondered why, you know, why to you know seven percent equity was was mm-hmm. that a bit too much and all that, but then he said that uh, they were maybe uh, at a size where it was right in between. Um, you know, a small company can go to the U.S. and then build up there, or but they were in between and they were not big enough to take the market. So they actually kept the company in the Netherlands. But he stayed, he stayed in um, in Silicon Valley to uh, to be exposed to that kind of uh, very strong competi- competitive drive to be among people that are uh, also kind of driving that pace forward. And it helped him a lot to uh, to to grow the company in from the Netherlands, and now obviously they're going big into the U.S. Um, but, but that was a so there's also a cultural thing to it, and yeah. and one I think other lessons is that if you go international, you have to be willing to also go along with the company. I mean, the founders need oh, to yeah. go there or need to have well, a strategy. That, that's, that's true when yeah. it's like the primary market. Yeah. I don't think that they have to move to Belgium, but I think that they're saying like if the U.S. is actually, the U.S. or whatever, it could be Japan or something else, is going to be the primary revenue machine for you in the next five years. Absolutely. Someone yeah. in the founder level needs to land themselves in that location. Yeah, and, and, in, and in that uh, perspective, um, hiring people is also, especially in the U.S., was mentioned many times as as complicated. Yeah. How do you, you know, your first hire in the in the U.S. If you if you want to hire a senior person, it's very difficult to to really read read the qualifications of people there and make sure that they stay loyal to the company and that you actually can retain the culture as well as you're extending into uh, into another into another market, especially the U.S. Um, and um, 
there, um, there I do feel that that uh, the ones that have been successful, like Derek, all have actually mm-hmm. gone or sent co-founders or very senior people to those uh, to those markets to develop. Well, them. I mean, if that's a lesson that came out of that, nearly consistent across all of them, has been that you can't outsource leadership. No. And, uh, for these, for something that, if you looked at your company and you looked across everything that's important and you simplified it down to like, okay, here's three things or five things that will make or break us in the next 12 to 18 months. You just can't outsource the big stuff. No. Um, which I think that's that's the kind of the, if we look at the lessons of leadership, but we kind of abstract some of these things up to leadership. Like there are traits with these individuals that I see. They don't, they, they have to do it themselves. They have to do, you know, some of them are obsessively involved in the details of their company. You might argue, well, oh, you should be able to outsource the details. But I mean, our conversation... I don't think that it's as obsessively, but I would say there wasn't a margin or an optimization challenge or or, a nuance of the business that he wasn't just freely sharing in the conversations. Like he was on the details, even though it's now whatever the size of it is. Yeah, he was actually responding to every customer complaint. Yes, uh, he was. He wanted to know. It was like listening in on calls and things. Like he was at the level of the customer conversation. He didn't abstract himself so far away from it. Like Ali's concerned about the button on the coffee machine. (laughs) Yeah, Ali's level of perfection. (laughs) Like, you know, the specificity of things. You know, he still will do code reviews, I hear. You know, those types of things. Um, Derek is the same. They're all, they stay into the details of their organization at whatever the appropriate level is. Because I think there are some people, maybe this is the product versus business thing where they, the business people are like, well, you know, I'll hire these people and they'll do all the details and I'll just be strategy and leadership. Yeah. All of which means fucking what? Nothing, unless you're getting the details done. Um, yeah, so we're coming a bit to the end of, yeah, uh, yeah. Of, the, mm-hmm. of this podcast. Um, maybe we should just share some uh, real insights of yeah. this last uh, um, of this yeah, last we could make our like, top uh, five to ten, five to eight list. What would we? What would we say? Whatever, we took away. Just, uh, let Let's shoot a few uh, a few insights uh, back and forth. Okay, so I, from the conversation today, and from you know the learnings, I'll put one on the table, which is I think that the technology matters. I think that you can't escape being product driven product out. So I think that's one I took away if I just collectively look at the big stories. How about you? You got one? No, I fully agree with that. And I think uh, uh, ambition is essential. I think uh, ambition is essential to attract capital. It's essential to to grow your business. And uh, if the if the ambition isn't there, you can only jump as high as you can believe you jump. So if you, um, if you set the bar low, you will never <laughs> go high. And uh, you actually mentioned this a number of times. I've heard you say, uh, if you if you set out to build a skyscraper, you don't build a house and pile different houses on top of each yeah, other. They're very different and plans, yes, the house exactly, and the skyscraper. Exactly. So that's really important. And then once you do that, your operations, your execution details, metrics, all of that needs to, needs to be aligned and uh, with that ambition. And don't be afraid of it. And yeah, don't be one. afraid of that. Yeah. Um, I think leadership... Is that I think the CEOs of these companies have learned somewhere along the way that they have to become masters of managing performance, leading not just you know, you know sort of de- not just sort of like uh, the the org- operational stuff, but like they have to lead the company, and that involves making everything as simple as possible. I think there's all this complexity that comes in organically, and these leaders that we're meeting, the ones that are successful, are simplifying their companies. They're not complex. Them. They're really trying to like 
squeeze the complicating things out of them and get it down to like, all right, we got five things to do this quarter. Everything else is stupid. Let's just do those five. Mm -hmm. I see that as a consistent. So that, that one, the simplification of the leadership element, I, I take away as like very, very important. Yeah, for me, um, so funding is really important. I really like the idea that uh, um, funding should also be simple, as simple as possible. Uh, the lesson of Peter to have uh, basically one set of terms for all your investors uh, is really strong. That's quite a luxurious position, yeah, but they did it. <laughs> don't give them board seats was another one, uh, or choose your board for to be supportive of you and your growth plans. So, uh, and I think if I see earlier stage companies than the ones that we've been talking to. Um, the value that experienced angels can actually bring. Yeah. Uh, in, it's beyond in, the money. In terms, it's way beyond the money, but it's also supporting the founders in developing their investment strategy, uh, and that's very often overlooked. Strategy comes afterwards. Uh, they, you know, it's, it's it's getting capital, but not how do I develop a strategy? How do I choose my investors? Uh, so that it's not just for this round, but also the, the coming rounds um, uh, will be covered. And uh, and what is the vision of the founder where the company will be going? Are yeah. you going to IPO? How big do you want to grow? Just, just having that vision. And we find that when we ask the companies uh, that are a bit kind of bit earlier stage than the ones that we've been talking to in this, uh, in this podcast, um, we often find that they don't really have a clear vision of how big the company should be. It's almost grow. like sometimes they have, they've forgotten that they're going to take money, which means someday you want to pay back a return. So there, there must be something that occurs. You can say you're going to IPO, you, but be definitive. Tell people what it is you have in mind. I think your point about vision is a big one. And being, being clear on what it is you're building. Mm -hmm. Don't tell people what you're doing. I make widgets. Well, what am I building? I'm building the world's most effective, largest widget machine, and you know it's going to go do X, Y, and Z. That's a different thing. Yeah. Um, I think you, you know. Well, that's and your point is about smart money. I really, I think I will throw in. I think that as much as I sort of talked about CEOs and maybe not being in operations, what I also understand is that operations make or break businesses. And I don't mean, oh, I manufacture something. I mean your ability to set up a rhythm of the business, to establish how you set priorities, to know how you communicate things, to just take the internal workings of your organization and make it simple and clean and, you know, not spend a year trying to understand OKRs and stuff like that. Like you, the operations will make or break. And the sooner you, you or someone you trust is a master of those things, then you're ready to scale. Because actually until your operations can scale, you might be able to build a product that'll go to 10 million users, but you can't support any of them. Yeah. Type. So operations make or break. Yeah, and, and link to operations, a uh, lesson from, you know, when we were trying to probe uh, Peter on, yeah, okay, what's the big, you, know, you must have made a big mistake, or you know, yeah. where, where, where's, which failure were you, do you still remember that was uh, was important to your company? He kept saying, uh, no, we don't, we didn't make big mistakes. Uh, we try to organize ourselves to make many small mistakes. Yeah. And, I think that's a discipline, a very operational discipline, is to force yourself to to take risks, but to take them in measured steps and uh, and organize that into your company. So. Well, I don't. Do we say? Are we contradicting ourselves with like be ambitious? Don't take no, too big I a don't risk. Think, How I, do you I don't, avoid that from being a conflict of interest? No, there? because um, you. I mean, it's you don't. You're not dumb. I mean, you are also always kind of managing risk. 
and uh, and there might be um, big steps to be taken, but you, you can divide them up in little ones. And um, and so going abroad, I mean, for for picnic to go to Germany is a really big step, but you can do that in many ways. You can yeah. do it rash uh, and uh, and foolishly and uh, all the and think dollars. that uh, that Germany is exactly the same as the Netherlands, or uh, take diligent steps towards it, but experiment and do it and uh, and learn from those uh, from those mistakes. Well, here's one. Mm-hmm. It can be done. It's possible. We were witness to a dozen companies just in this one podcast that were centering themselves in the Netherlands and growing out to be international success stories. So for any entrepreneur listening to our conversation today, guess what? It's possible. It can be done. There is no reason not to try. So if great ideas are out there, I just don't want to, I know we can, you and I can spend the time because we're sort of, we're the analysts around the game, right? We're, we're caught looking at the plays mm, and we can yep. second guess. But the truth is, it's possible. I don't want anyone to think all of our criticisms somehow throw you against it. But it's possible. Yeah. Base camp in the Netherlands can build global power powerhouses. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, every success, there's a person behind it. You know, we can, we can talk about Elon Musk as some kind of, uh, I don't know, what, what you'd make of him, Superman or something, but he's just a person and he built this. And there's no reason why you cannot build uh, big things from wherever you are. Yeah. And uh, But I do think if you look at all the people we talk to, they are like uh, Olympic athletes. Yeah. They are uh, driven like crazy. They are disciplined often, also in, in how they manage their private lives and uh, and how they run their companies. And, uh, and that kind of drive and discipline is quite telling. So I think... Yeah. Um, we, you can't really romanticize building a startup in, uh, to scale. Uh, it's not normal that you're taking a company within five years' time and taking it from zero to a billion. That's that's an incredible feat. And uh, it requires a, a set of skills that are not readily available, I mean, among the population. you, I mean, you It's not only just having the great idea, but it's the yeah. execution, it's understanding people, it's understanding processes, it's being, taking the risk, it's, under, it's networking, bring, And also, I think this is, we didn't really discuss on this. Obviously, we, we asked everyone, you know, who is the person you, you would ask advice to? And some of them didn't come up with an advisor or with someone they would look up or to. Or some of them thought, but, yeah, yeah. That, why would they ask exactly. anyone but themselves? But, <laughs> but I think there's a lot in understanding what you don't know, understanding what your weakness is. Yeah. And 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 daring to hire people or to to um, to bring in mentors or others that will will actually support you um, in in addressing your own weaknesses. I mean, this this falls into the don't accept the limitations. In, in a sense, in the example of uh, Von Moff, where they would hire someone that they couldn't afford. Actually, over and over, we talked to companies, they would hire people that they couldn't afford, and they just found a way to get them in, whether it's on calls or special packaging or whatever. In this case, you're saying, look, don't be afraid to hire that talent that far exceeds your own, because that is actually the path of, of, of being able to break through here. You need it. You need to combine all those things. It's not mm-hmm. going to be, you alone will not, will not make it. You have to have that team around you. Maybe it's worth thanking everyone for that. Yeah, I mean, we, we had, could go on for, I mean, this has been such a rich uh, conversation. And has. when we started it, we, we just thought we, we, we don't have to go into the history how this all came about. Yeah. But uh, as I, one short line to you, because it's credit to you, Joe. I mean, you wanted to understand better. So you went yeah. out interviewing people and saying, well, why, you know, why do some succeed and and so big, like Adyen or Takeaway? 
And and why do others uh, seem to get stuck into this? We are where are the big dreamers, and you wanted to understand. So we kind of started to explore yeah. the the reasons why, and then ended up in this podcast. Yeah, and, well, so uh, people don't know that we you and I started a conversation, just the two of us, in the curiosity, like why the hell is some of this work and some of it doesn't? And we were like, maybe there's a book or something someday. Yeah, but you, we were, yeah, we're thinking about the book. We're just like, but let's just go yeah, talk to these guys yeah, and see what we find in common. Exactly, and our our colleague uh, Pauline, who is also yes. she was driven to do a podcast as i can the, see her yeah. smiling face from yeah, here that's and good, good, so good. she's yes. like she was always like no question about willingness to produce uh i think the team at air force that we work with that, that makes us sound great uh gets a shout out as well um george from tech leap but i think also uh the folks that surround us and our guests our guests are the source of the wisdom that you and i get to <laughs> organize and discuss um so I would say if we think to Taco and Michiel, to Mark uh, from ACNT, to Manon, Yitze, of course, Chris Hall came to see us, Marlene, uh, Joella, Robert Fish, Derek Rose, and then of course Ali and then Peter from Ajin all spent some time with us out of their busy schedules, which is, I might criticize the inorganic nature of getting together, but we are finding that successful Dutch entrepreneurs do want to give back and they will have these conversations. Absolutely. And they were willing to be very open and sharing and uh, and they never say no. no. We, I mean, we, every everyone accepted to be on this podcast and uh, we, we're planning to continue to be more ambitious. Well, this is, yeah, this this is sort of year one or, you yes. know, and then the next season, I don't know if we're in seasons, but it's coming up. And a thank you to you, Constantine, as well, my personal Santa Claus who uh, was willing to do this and, and have these conversations. And you have a, what is somewhat of an undying curiosity for this space. You've been in the entrepreneurial ecosystem endeavors far longer than I have here in the Netherlands. So I think the whole country has a, has a debt to sort of, you know, for your time and energy on this, because it's certainly a personal mission of yours to sort of see it succeed. Well, thanks. Thanks for being so uh, friendly, Joe. It's uh, <laughs> an American trait. Yes, exactly. You're so, I mean, it's incredible. If you're on a golf course in the U.S. and you hit a lousy ball, someone would say, you know, well, that's a beautiful swing. And it always reminds me that you actually can say very nice people, uh, things to people. Uh, and you, if you if just just work hard enough, you can always find something nice to say and, and actually doing that. So I'll do my utmost to say something nice about you now. Try. Uh, I know it's uh, difficult. Joe. Reach deep. Uh, yes. But uh, um, look, this is, I think we should close or we'll just be in this <laughs> No, no, love you're going to get this forever. one for me. So, no, thanks for, uh, you, you combine uh, the deep technological insight and the business and, and uh, an incredible passion for the entrepreneurs. And I remember each time that we do selection, uh, the selection process for the RISE program, you kept, keep saying, we are not venture capitalists. Not. We are here to listen to the entrepreneurs, to to believe in them, to, believe in them. to support support them, and not try to break down their story and find and shoot holes in what they're saying, yeah. but you know believe in what they what they dream and see if we can make that dream work. So, and and I I, I want to echo your thanks to all the um, the the guests we had on the podcast because they all have in some way kind of made their dream work and uh, and are willing to share and I hope that we'll continue doing that together. Well, for all those listening that have stayed with us through this this <laughs> thanking part of this, there is one one part of this group that we haven't thanked yet, and that is anybody who's listening. I mean, fundamentally, we started this to reach an audience of entrepreneurs. I think it's gone beyond that, as we've learned from uh, the different numbers that come back. 
So we'll try and keep the quality exactly as it is or better. Better, 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 better as well as the guests uh, as good or better. Um, I'm not sure how the previous guests might feel about that comment, <laughs> but uh, that's our, our commitment. We'll keep going as long as you're willing to listen. And Constantine, I think that's it. Thanks. Well, thank you for listening to this special episode wrapping up 2021. I'd like to use the occasion to invite you to the Tech Leap Summit on the 10th of February, where we'll be looking into the state of Dutch tech and looking forward to what 2022 may bring. So please don't forget to register and join the community to come together on our summit. And let's celebrate a new year in tech on the 10th of February. See you there and thank you very much. <laughs>